we're doing this series called Not So Little Women. And I am really surprised now that we're coming really closer to the end of it, that there are a lot of women who have gone through a lot of things in different churches that have not been the healthiest. And not that that's us. Hopefully it's not us. I want to apologize if that has happened to you in the name of Jesus. Uh, But if you have questions, it's like I've said before, where you walk this and something kind of hits you the wrong way and you want to ask a question, please feel free to come and ask a question. Do not feel like you can never question or ask about something that's going on because I know, I get it. There There's been a lot of bad things that have happened in the name of Jesus within the church, and we want to seek to change that. So if you do have questions, please come. And again, I'm a guy going through this series, and I don't see some of the ways this may trigger some people and some things that have happened to you. So again, if something hits you in that way and you want to talk about it, please let us know. It doesn't have to be me. It could be somebody else on staff. But we just want to make sure that you are aware, that we are aware that there has been some things that have happened in the name of the church, not element, hopefully, but the church in the past, and we want to be able to help you work through those things. All right. If you're new to element, bring some cookies next week. Welcome. (laughs) There are Bibles in the seat backs in front of you. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. There are sermon notes on the communion tables around the room. They look like this. And on the upper right, you're going to get the verses we will hit today. Underneath that, you get a place for notes. On the bottom, you get four questions. During this series, it is the same four questions every week. On the back... How about that? On the back side, you get a short recap of what we will talk about today. If you have a smart device, you can download an app. It is called Uversion. You click on More and then Events in Uversion. We'll come up by GPS in your smart device, and you will get sermon notes, verses, questions, announcements, and all that goes with today's message. My name is Aaron. I am one of the pastors at Element. Why don't you stand with me for the reading of God's Word? This is Ruth chapter 4, verse 14, and it says this, Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a Redeemer, and may His name be renowned in Israel. Let's pray. Father, this morning we ask that you would teach us what it means to be these people who understand your renown first above anything else, and that we would be those who would glorify and honor you, and that we would encourage one another to see how you are working in our lives in the mundane ways, in the ordinary ways that we may not see ourselves, that as we see that working in other people, we would remind them that that is you, and we would glorify you in all things. Amen. Have a seat. So as I said, we're doing this series called Not So Little Women, looking at different stories of different women in the Bible, obviously not all of them, but a good number of them. And today I feel like I have to just jump in because I have a lot to get through. We're going to talk about an ancestor of Jesus. Her name was Ruth. If you have a Bible, you can open to Ruth. We're going to jump through different verses there. If you're using one of the Bibles at Element, that's on page 143. In the Gospel of Matthew, he will go through his genealogy account of Jesus, and what you will see that he puts in there is something almost no ancient genealogies had, and that is women in that genealogy. Most ancient genealogies were a father to a son type of thing, but here you have four women in there. Ruth is one of those. Last week we talked about Tamar. Tamar is one of those. A month and a half ago we talked about Rahab, uh, who is one of the people in there, and also a woman named Bathsheba. We're not doing Bathsheba during this series. I've talked about that multiple times in the past, but I wanted to start that way because there is a lot to Ruth, but we are stepping into this Christmas season. 
And you have to understand that we don't really even understand the Christmas story without understanding a lot of these women. Uh, Ruth is a woman, but it's also a book in the Bible. And so there's a lot to give you this bird's eye view of her story so we can see what we can learn. If you want to get a more in-depth look, we went through the book of Ruth, I think about six years ago. It's 13 weeks. It's on the website. You can listen to it. But Ruth is a book that almost comes out of the book of Judges. It's almost like a juxtaposition to the book of Judges. Judges ends on this really somber note. And it talks about the state of the nation of Israel like 3,000 years ago. Judges ends like this. Judges 21 verse 25. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now that sounds like America in 2023, does it not? Whatever we do, it is right in our own eyes and nobody better tell me no. There used to be signs in businesses that say that we reserve the right to refuse service to anybody and those are almost all gone. And if people do have them, they're not gonna refuse the right to serve you because if they did, they would get canceled. They get boycotted. You just can't tell anybody no anymore. Our culture acts like if there's something we want to do, no one should be able to tell us no because it is right right in my own eyes. No one wants to serve anybody else. Everybody is about themselves. It's very self-righteous. It's like I say sometimes that everybody hates Hitler. You give all of us enough power, though, we all go the exact same direction. So you come out of the book of Judges. You step into the book of Ruth. Ruth 1-1 starts like this. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So it ties to the book of Judges. And this almost looks like it's saying this famine was a judgment of God for the things, for the way that Israel was acting at the time. It also could be that everyone was lazy and no one wanted to work or knew how to work. Hashtag post-COVID. See, it's just like today. I mean, during this terrible time, the time of the Judges, there is a man and he takes his family to this area called Moab. His name is Elimelech. And it is written in such a way that it looks like Elimelech looks around and is part of the problem that is causing this famine and decides, well, I'm just going to get up and I'm going to move somewhere else. So he sells his house and moves to Texas to start over. You're welcome, Roy, if you're listening. Okay. (laughs) Now, I know it doesn't sound like that far, but Moab was probably about 50 miles from Bethlehem where Elimelech started. Now to us, you get in a car, you drive to Santa Barbara in an hour, it's fine. Imagine doing all of that with no cars, you're walking, taking whatever stuff you have left. That's a pretty good trek. It would take you a good bit of time to get there. So Elimelech takes his entire family to Moab and everyone will die there except for his wife, Naomi. Moab is not a great place. The The Moabites don't like the Israelites. The Israelites don't like the Moabites. Again, I know this is Ruth's story, but you got to start with this knucklehead in order to get you to the story in the background of Ruth. So Elimelech is in Moab. He has two sons. They marry Moabite women. Now Moab is a culture that worships this god called Chemosh. I like to call Chemosh the subduer, the destroyer, Gozer the Gozerian, the Stay Puff Marshmallow Man. <laughs> if anybody knows the reference, Ghostbusters won the best one. Anyway, Oh, okay. So Chemosh, he delights in human sacrifice, uh, really infant sacrifice. The Moabite people in the book of Genesis, they start out from a place of incest. When you get to the book of Joshua, they have become this very large group of people and they are trying to defeat the Israelites, but they can't defeat them. And so they decide, let's send our girls over instead to entice all the guys to sin. Why? So God would get mad at the Israelites and destroy them 
them for the Moabites. I mean, it's brilliant. I mean, it's wrong, but, but, it's, but it's kind of brilliant. And so there's this animosity between the Moabites and the, and the Israelites. And Elimelech takes his family there, and the text is written in such a way that it looks like he embraces that culture. His sons marry Moabite women, but after 10 years, he dies. He goes there to live and he dies, and then his sons die. And this is where you meet Ruth. So who is Ruth? Well, Ruth is a Moabite young woman, and that's really all you know about her until she comes to faith in the true and living God. So Moabite women had this reputation, whether it's deserved or not, like the green lady in Star Trek. Very sexual, right? So this comes about, as I said, because at one point these Moabite women are used to seduce the Israelite males away from God. Now, you gotta take a step back and say, oh, those terrible women. No, we are responsible for our own sin. You know, today there's a lot of people who look at Moabites and say, oh, those Moabites are terrible. When people sin, it's our own choice. Sure, there may have been something there that they were like, hey, but men and women both do this. They both seduce one another, and yet we are responsible for our own sin. But the Moabite women, again, in that day, had this reputation of being the ones who were easy. And this is in the text repeated over and over. And I think it's to show you the difference between how Ruth actually lived versus the perception of what other people thought about her. Over and over, it will use these words, Ruth 1.4, they took Moabite wives. Ruth 1.22, he calls her Ruth the Moabite. Ruth chapter 2, verse 2, Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, it keeps defining her this way so you can see the difference of the perception versus how she lived. There will be a point where she's working out in this field of a guy named Boaz, and Boaz will check on her safety, and he will say, you know, people keeping their hands off her, is she okay? And the foreman says, oh yeah, that young Moabite woman, you know the ones, and it's just written in the text that way so you would understand. What is great is that Ruth doesn't hide from the reputation. Instead, she seeks to change it, which is something that I think would be good for all of us at times. If, someone, if you do something dumb, sometimes the best way to move past it is own it and say, yeah, that was dumb, I'm really sorry. This is the kind of thing that you see Ruth and her character, because she knows how everyone thinks about her. She knows what people are saying, how she's perceived, but instead of playing the woe is me card, what she does is she lives differently to show that there's a difference in who she is. And that's not my final point of what we learn, but it's a good one. Guys, look, people will make fun of you if you claim outwardly to be a Christian in this world today. It starts to happen. And, and you know why? Christians have been idiots. They really have been. But hey, we can reclaim the name of Christ by not being idiots. I mean, think about things like if you wait till you are married to have sex and people know that because you love Jesus, you might get made fun of. If you raise your kids and you tell them no when it's appropriate to tell them no and you discipline them like you should and people find out about that because you love Jesus, you might get made fun of. What we have to understand is we want to step into these places where God calls us to, to lift up his name, even when it goes against things our culture says. So we own that and we live in love and grace because God calls us to, which means we face also our mistakes and we face our problems and our past and we walk forward because it's God who has saved us. All right, so what is Ruth's story? 
Well, here we go. Uh, Naomi's sons, you know, they have died and they leave these wives, Ruth and Orpah. Now, Naomi, Ruth and Orpah, they are all tied together. They are all supposed to take care of one another so they can survive. Naomi realizes, I can't take care of these two girls, though. If we try to do this together, we're all going to die. So what she does is she sends these girls back to their family and their gods. Now, I know it sounds like a bad evangelism strategy, right? Go back to your god, Chemosh. But Naomi is not sending them back to their gods. She's sending them back to their families and their gods. They're Moabites. Those things go hand in hand. Just like they go hand in hand with the Israelites. Now, when she sends them back, though, she does not say, may your gods bless you. She doesn't say, I hope you find satisfaction in your religion like I find satisfaction in mine. She does not say, Yahweh and the Moabite god Chemosh are the same and equally valid. What she says when she sends them back is Ruth 1.8, May the Lord, and that is God's covenant name with Israel, Yahweh, may the Lord deal kindly with you. What she does is sends them back and says, if you're going to live a blessed life, the Lord is going to be the one that has to bless you. My God. Now, Orpah, Ruth's sister-in-law, says, okay, thanks, bye-bye. But Ruth doesn't leave. And Naomi keeps trying to get Ruth to leave. Ruth 1.15, she says, Orpah's gone back to her family and her gods. Why don't you go back to your family and your gods? And you, Ruth's response speaks volumes about who she is now. She says, I don't want my gods anymore. I want your God. And Ruth doesn't just use the word for God. Ruth 1, 16 and 17, she says, Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. Now, when she uses the word Lord here, that's the word Yahweh. That is God's covenant name with his people. And Ruth takes that covenant name of God upon herself. And in the text, right there, that's the conversion of Ruth into a follower of the one true God. Naomi's trying to send her back to her people because she loves them. She loves them. It is this giving out of sacrificial love that puts Ruth's well-being above her own. And up to this point, they probably do not believe in Naomi's God, the God of Israel, but they see her character. And now Ruth says, I want your God. Ruth has probably never seen anybody love her like Naomi has just loved her. And let me point out, because we're afraid to say this today, like it's not loving, but our God makes exclusive claims about salvation. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father except through me. We have to understand that. This is what God calls us to. But his love and our love is meant to be non-exclusive in who we love. Like, if you learn to love people in deep friendship, regardless of what they believe, not that you don't care about what they believe, you should care about it, but if you love them regardless of that, what you believe is going to look very credible. If you love people who only believe what you believe, or maybe are on the way to believe what you believe, why should they believe what you believe? There is nothing wrong with saying, my view of God is truer than your view of God. Everybody on this planet has a view of God. Everybody bases their life and their eternity on their view of God. Even if you're an atheist, you are basing your life on your view of God, which is yourself and your three-pound brain that sits in your skull. You're basing it upon that. People who put those coexist bumper stickers on their cars, they have this idea that my view is better than all of these people's views. Everybody has their take on spiritual reality. And we believe, and there is nothing wrong with saying this, that the world would be a better place if people believed in Jesus, that there would be redemption and salvation and grace and lives would be changed. There's nothing wrong with that. What is wrong is how we sometimes treat people who differ than us. 
Now, what happens now is that Ruth is not going to leave. So Naomi says, well, I'm going to go back to Israel. I'm going to return to where I came from. And that's a beautiful picture of what we call repentance. Returning back to who God calls us to be, where he calls us to live. And that is what she does. Now she goes and she pulls into town and she looks like she is just beat up because life has really beat her up. And so she tells everyone, don't call me Naomi anymore. I'm going to change my name literally to bitter old lady. Just call me bitter old lady. And she tells everybody this. That's, that's what I'm going to be. It's, just, it's kind of crazy. But meanwhile, while Naomi is kind of dealing through some of that depression, Ruth goes out to start to work to take care of both of them. She ends up in the field of a very godly man. His name is Boaz, who works hard, has good business ethics, takes care of his employees, even in the midst of the time of the judges and all that craziness. And so he sees Ruth out there. She's working hard and well, and without any sense of needing an expectation of what I'm going to get back, he goes out of his way to bless her by giving her more provisions than she could truly earn on her own. Boaz is impressed with Ruth's work ethic, with her commitment to doing what's right in the eyes of God by taking care of Naomi. And I am condensing this a lot. Remember, 13 weeks down to one week, I'm condensing a lot. But basically what happens is at the end of the harvest, here you have this party that gets together. We're going to harvest all of our stuff now. We're all going to get together. We're going to celebrate because now we take these things to market and here we go. Everybody's going to be at the party. It's going to be, Boaz is going to dress up and there's been some interest in the text now between Ruth and Boaz and Boaz and Ruth and Naomi notices this. And so Naomi says to Ruth, okay, he's going to be all cleaned up and look nice. So how about let's you clean up and you look nice. You do your nails and your hair and, you know, put on makeup, get some perfume, shave your legs and your pits. So you don't look like a Yeti and <laughs> let Boaz see you, see you cleaned up for the first time. Go to the party. And Ruth does. She does. And as the party winds down, you know, people in this day and age, you would go, you would eat, you would drink, you would dance, you would laugh, you'd develop conversation. There's no hotels. And so you just go find a nice straw bale or something and you lay down and go to sleep and wake up the next morning. That was a great party. Harvest time, right? It was, everybody loved it. And so Boaz goes to find a place to, to go to sleep. And as he does, Ruth will, under the quiet of darkness, she'll go and lay down at his feet. Ruth 3 verse 7 says, she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. Now, some people say uh, uncovering his feet is a euphemism for something else. That has come about in about the last 50 years, and I don't think that's true because I really think the text, it does so hard to push you to see that Ruth the Moabite versus her character. And I do not think it would go back on all of that now, just say, hey, yeah, and Ruth went in and seduced him with her wily ways. I don't think that's why she went secretly. I think she went secretly because she knows how everybody perceives her. And she doesn't want to bring disgrace upon Boaz. And so she goes in and does this quietly. And what she's going to do is ask Boaz to be her and Naomi's redeemer. Uh, chapter 3, verse 9, she says, Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Now, these words are not her asking Boaz to marry her. What she's doing is asking Boaz to ask her to marry him. That's, that's kind of what's happening here. And in this culture, when someone became a redeemer, there were a couple things they would do. Leviticus 25 tells you they serve two functions. One, a redeemer would redeem people, meaning they've gotten themselves into untenable, weak, unsustainable positions. 
And so he comes in and helps them or to redeem property. This is when a family's land was taken from them due to debt. So this is an agrarian society. And when you lost your land, you really kind of lost everything. Multiple generations would raise and be worked on a particular farm. And that would be your life. And then all of a sudden, it's gone. So in this culture, if you got into debt, you can't get payday loans. You can't rack up your credit cards. You can't declare bankruptcy. You would either have to sell yourself or your family land to pay off the debt. And these things would devastate your family. Now, Elimelech was a guy who sold off his family land. It was his mistake. And in this culture, that's a disgraceful thing to lose your land. It's given to you by your parents. It should be given to your children after you. If you don't have land, people could die of starvation. And so the Redeemer would come in and he would pay off the debt of a person to get them out of slavery, or he would pay off the debt to get the land back and bring it back into the family. The Redeemer is the fixer. The Redeemer is the one who was blessed by God to bless others. A Redeemer would be obligated to look after widows or orphans. If a man died, he was related to. And Boaz was related to Elimelech. Now, he's to come in and care for biological relatives, but Ruth is not a biological relative. She is not connected to this family by birth, but she's been brought in because of her faith in God. And she is expecting now in this place to maybe be redeemed. She is loved by Naomi as a daughter. She treats Naomi as a mother. Naomi is also expecting Ruth to be redeemed because she sees her as family. And there's a whole lot to this. I spent four to five weeks just covering this during the series. Again, if you want more, you can go back and listen to it. But what do we learn from Ruth in the midst of all of this? Well, part of the problem in Ruth and Naomi's situation is that for anybody to redeem them, redeem them, they'd have to buy back Elimelech's land and they'd have to marry Ruth. Now, the interesting thing in this is that there was someone who was, who was further up in line to buy Elimelech's land back. And Boaz is like, I'll do it, but I got to go talk to that guy first. And Boaz is so smart when you read this in Ruth chapter 4. But the guy comes in, he's all, hey, do you want to redeem Elimelech's land? And the guy's like, sure, I can use some, I'll redeem the land. And he's like, you know, but you got to marry Ruth, <clears throat> the Moabite. And the guy's like, oh, my wife would kill me. I can't do that. And Boaz is like, yeah, he's all, never mind, you can do it. And Boaz is like, done. And it's, and it's so smart how he does this to go and redeem them. But you have to understand, in this culture, he is now going to marry a woman of a despised race. The only daughter-in-law left in order to establish Elimelech's line, which wasn't the greatest. But Boaz is going to do this, not because of blood with Elimelech, not because of Elimelech's character, but because of Ruth's character. So there's three things I think we can learn in this. I'm going to start at the very, very top of where we started in this. Is Number one is this. Ruth shows us the life-changing power of friendships. It really does. Friendships is one of the most powerful things on earth. And I, even if you have a great marriage, what makes that marriage great is going to be the friendship. You have that politically incorrect thing that happens at the beginning of the story where Ruth says there is one God, the God of Israel. The God of Israel says, I am the only God. There is another other gods besides me. You must worship me exclusively. Naomi knew that. And Ruth, as I said, was converted through Naomi's friendship. Obviously, God's spirit working in her, but through that friendship. Later, Boaz comes to this place where he will love Ruth because he sees her loving friendship with Naomi and her trust in God. Being friends with people doesn't mean you never talk about Jesus. We should talk about Jesus if he is the reason that we live the way that we do. Telling people about him is loving them. Those who say, oh, I don't think anyone should try to convert anybody else. They're saying that their view of God is better than your view of God. Your view of God's too narrow. You shouldn't tell anybody. That's a narrow view. 
Okay, what they just said is actually a narrow view. They're forbidding you to do the very thing that they are actually doing with you. Nobody can avoid forever talking about our view of faith in God. We bet our whole life on who he is and what he has done in us. Why would we not talk about it? See, when Ruth converts to follow Yahweh, the one true God, the God of the Bible, it's not out of the blue. What she sees is this sacrificial commitment that Naomi had towards her, and it changed her vision of everything, this sacrificial love. And really, that's basically how almost everybody I know comes to faith and trust in Jesus. Obviously, you know, God's Spirit working, but there's sermons, there's ministries, there's all of those things. But really, people get into relationships with one another, and they see how this faith is lived out. Friendships change the world. Second thing is, these friendships means that there are now signs of hope in every single life because God is working all the time under the surface. And that means we never have to lose hope, though we do, but that's why we have friendships to come in and remind us. Every moment, God is doing a thousand things for His glory and our good, and that's the book of Ruth. All the loss, all the pain, all the insecurity, everything in the book, even when God appears absent, when God appears like He's not listening, He always is. The book of Ruth is not a story where God just plucks people out of this place and puts them in the the promised land. It's a story that actually suggests that Ruth, though looking powerless, has a tremendous amount of power at her disposal to make a choice that will shape the rest of her life. And I think that's God molding her heart. I think it's God calling her to himself. Ruth doesn't make excuses. She doesn't let her ethnicity define her. One author writes this, Ruth is a book for people who look around their life and they see absolutely no dramatic events of any sort. They see nothing but mundane times and hard times. In the middle of all these mundane times and these hard times, Ruth sees God actually being at work. God is at work in our lives for his glory and our good, even when we don't see it. God gave Naomi to Ruth. God gave Ruth to Naomi. Naomi loved Ruth, but she gets off track. She finally comes back to Israel, call me bitter old lady, and walks around with that. She's totally bitter. And it reminds us that sometimes we don't see the signs of hope that God has placed into our lives of how God is working. But Jesus reminds us, John 5, verse 17, my father is working until now and I am working. God is still at work even when we don't see it. Even when we claim he's not, he still is. A lot of us are like Naomi. She comes back to Bethlehem. Oh, I'm empty. She just walked into town with the Ruth. She just walked into town with that. She wasn't empty. She didn't have nothing. She had a treasure that God put in her life, and she didn't see it. You know why? Because she was so self-focused. That's why. And this is like us. We sometimes are so self-focused. And this is why it's good for us to live in a community with other believers who can step in and say, you aren't empty. God has placed a Ruth in your life. God has blessed you in all these places where you don't even see it. See, Naomi has this agenda for her life. This is how it's supposed to go. This is what it's supposed to look like. And because God's agenda is not her agenda, she can't see the signs of hope that God has placed in her life. And maybe you are in that place right now. You have an agenda. Things aren't going your way. Maybe it's monetarily or relationship or the lack of a relationship or a, or a job or the lack of a job. Ruth teaches us in all of these places, these mundane things, these ordinary things that God moves the most. And it would be funny if it wasn't so sad. God has abandoned me. And yet there is Ruth clinging to her. And when when Ruth was clinging to her, that's God clinging to her. That's God saying, I'm going to take care of you. He didn't let her go. If you believe in him, I will tell you this. God holds you as well. God does not let you go. And that's hope. Ruth is able to give Naomi hope in the book 
because she found hope in God himself. And we all need a Ruth. We all need to be a Ruth to somebody else, to someone around us, someone who can look past our bitterness. When Naomi is like, God has dealt bitter with me. Uh, God has smitten me. God has taken me out. God has devastated me. And then there's Ruth going, yeah, that's the God I want. That's the God I want to follow. I'm going to serve him all my life. And it's like, what? See, nobody really can hold on to hope all the time. We all get in these places. And that's why we need one another. Friendship leads directly to hope. And third, what we learn through this friendship and hope is the gospel moves us away from our self-centeredness. I think I put snobbery and prejudice, but it moves us away from our self-centeredness. See, the story of Ruth is not this traditional tale where girl gets guy, has babies, everything's okay. If you read it carefully, you see almost at every point it starts to subvert this traditional society because traditional society says blood is thicker than water. What matters is family. And Ruth says, I don't want that. I want a relationship with somebody who has the same relationship with God that I do. I don't want blood. I want grace to be the basis of this relationship. Traditional society says interracial marriage is a no-no, but the salvation of the whole world comes to us through an interracial marriage. I mean, last week with Tamar, you got this thing with incest. Ruth, you know, Moabites come out from incest in this interracial marriage here. God loves to stand all of our traditions on their head. Traditional society says men are better than women. And yet, the climax of the book of Ruth, 3,000 years ago, this is what you read, Ruth 4, 14 and 15. Then the women said to Naomi, bless the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. And this is about the child that Ruth and Boaz have together. But what they say to Ruth in this, or to Naomi in this, is that Ruth, is better to you than seven sons. Now, we don't understand that today, but seven in this culture is a number of completeness. What they just said to her is, Ruth means more and is better to you than an infinite number of boys. I mean, that's huge. How many times does God have to work through the second born, the outsider, the lost ones until we get it? We are saved by grace. There is not a place in the family of God for prejudice because our relationship with God is not based on us being better than anybody else. It's based on what Jesus has done. And that should be the death of snobbery. It should be the death of prejudice. It should be the death of self-centeredness because Ruth is not this story that says, oh, go be like Ruth. Ruth ultimately points us to the one who will one day be her descendant as her son leads to a son to a son to a son that eventually leads to Jesus. Ruth shows us what Jesus does for us. Ruth leaves her father's house. She leaves her country. She comes down. She becomes an outsider. She becomes a suffering servant to love the unlovable, bitter old lady, Naomi. She becomes despised and rejected. But why did Ruth do this? Was it because she says, I'm going to be a sacrifice? No, she saw an act of sacrificial love that was given to her that changed her life and made her begin to live that way. So what do we see? Her life points us to Jesus, leaves his throne above, empties himself, becomes an outsider, becomes a suffering servant to love the unlovable. Uh, That's us, by the way. That's us. He dies for us. He takes our poverty. He gives us his riches. That's what you learn from Ruth who Jesus is when he comes, so we would see him. Jesus comes, offers us restored relationship with God, offers us friendship. What does that friendship lead to? A restored hope that our lives can have meaning, which should destroy our self-centered attitudes. Why do we in turn begin to live differently? Why do we begin to live the way that we do? 
because of Christ's sacrificial love first given to us. This is where the book of Ruth has to push you towards, to understand His grace, His goodness. Every single week at Element, we take you to this place of communion. Why? Because it's a reminder of the goodness of God, what Jesus did, His sacrificial love given to us. That is why you break the cracker. That reminds us of His body that was broken for us when you dip it in the wine or the grape juice. That reminds us of His blood that was shed for you and me. Jesus came and sacrificed himself. Did He need to do this? No. But He does it out of love. Not because we're so wonderful he couldn't help himself, but because of his love that he deemed to bestow upon us. And this is where we understand the life-changing things that Jesus brings into our life. Jesus brings us to the place where we have restored relationship with God. That offers us a hope where we begin to live differently in the world. And it's not a self-centered thing. It is something that steers directly to what he has done and teaches us how to live that out in the world. His grace, His goodness, His life given to us. That's what changes us. And it keeps us to, away from being to people who have prejudice or snobbery. We do everything we do because we have been given grace. And we want to live in that grace as well. Guys, if you need prayer today, maybe you have had this thing with God where you've got your agenda and God is not doing all the things that you want Him to do. Your life isn't going the way you expect it to go. And how dare God not do what I want Him to do? And now you're like, maybe I should rethink that. Uh, if you want someone to pray with you, we would love to pray with you. Uh, right outside these doors in the lounge across the way, you can go in during the last couple songs. You can go after service is over. But we would love to be able to pray with you about that, to talk about what grace really looks like in our lives. Serving, loving, honoring who He is in everything that we do. The restoration that we get to live in. Uh, if you want to give, there are offering boxes on the side wall. You can give online. As Sarah said, I think this is one of the last weeks to, do, to get in on this year's stuff. But we don't, we don't give because we're trying to make God love us. We give because God has been so good to us. And every time we give, it's a response to God's generosity first given to us. That's why we give. But I encourage you to take those questions on those sermon notes and walk through those. When you understand, you know, what Ruth's story pushes us towards, what it helps us to understand. And there's lots more than the three I just gave you. Again, we did 13 weeks on this. But in this understanding of God's love given to us as he seeks us, he becomes the outsider. I mean, this is the whole point of Christmas. You know, born to a couple who were seen as outsiders, who had nothing and yet, he's not born to you. Like, I always make fun of this. Like, you know, he could have, Jesus, when he came, he could have been born into, into fam any family he wanted to. He could have been a, into a Caesar. He could have been a Herod. He could have been, but he comes and is born to Mary and Joseph, these humble people who had nothing. Why? Because it shows us who God is in his nature. And God calls us to be a people who respond and live that exact same way. Why? Not because it makes him love us more than we do, but we live that way because we see the sacrificial love first given to us. And it changes how we live. So let's be a people, a special coming into Christmas, that worship him for who he is. Let's pray. Father, this morning, I ask that you would take and move us to an understanding of what the gospel truly means in our lives, this good news. And that we would be those who come and lay ourselves down in surrender because we see what you have first done for us. 
that our lives wouldn't be lived out of a fear of you where we're quaking in our boots, but an awesome respect for who you, who you are and what you have done. And that how we live would begin to show those around us who you are. That we would be those who would love those that the people around us deem unlovable. That we would offer grace to those who in our own minds think don't deserve grace. Because we don't deserve grace. And yet you've given it to us. Have us look at all the wonderful things that you do in our lives that are just under the surface. Have us see how you're working in other people's lives around us. And have us be able to rejoice and speak of those things to one another. So that we would be those who encourage one another to have our hearts and our lives open to all that you are doing and that we would worship you in all of these things. And we ask this in your son's good name. Amen. So what I'd like you to do, when we kind of head into this first song, ask God right now, If again, I always say, if you got the guts, ask God what your agenda is for your life versus what his agenda is in your life. Because sometimes people get, get so messed up when they're looking for this one little dot. God's what's your will. I got to find that one little dot. God's will for your life is to love, serve, and glorify him. Because in so doing, he will love other people. He will serve others in the midst of that. And so we want to be able to be those who understand God's call in our life. But too often, we get so self-focused. We get so centered around our own agendas that it pulls us away from who God is calling us to be, who God is calling us to reach out to, from really offering His grace in the world around us. So ask God right now, God, you know, what's my agenda versus your agenda? Show me what that is. And then lay that down at the foot of the cross and begin to live His call in your life. And you can come just, well, I guess like the song, just as you are, you know. Because that's how God calls us to come, as we are.